On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we will be covering part two for chapter six of the Cormu Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. I'm Taylor Larson. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we will continue with the Hospital Corpsman Manual, covering Chapter 6, Part 2. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you will be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. As always, sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Part 2 for Chapter 6 of the Hospital Corpsman Manual, Human Anatomy and Physiology. We will begin today by covering the muscular system. Together with the skeletal system, it works to give our body shape and movement. Muscles are responsible for many different types of body movements. This is accomplished mostly in relation to the bones. A particular muscle attaches to bones by way of a tendon. This attachment to a bone at a fixed point is known as an origin, and the more flexible attachments, especially when attached to movable bones, are called insertions. Muscles most often work together in accomplishing their functions of providing movement, maintaining body posture, and providing heat through chemical changes that occur during muscle activity. The white fibrous tissue that assists muscle groups in working together by binding them is known as fascia. Due to muscles' mass and large surface area, they make up about one half of the total body weight. Muscle contraction is the key to movement. Contractibility of muscles enables them to become shorter and thicker. Muscle contraction in a tissue or organ provides motion and provides power and speed for body activities. When a muscle is contracting, another is relaxing to allow the intended movement to take place. The contracting muscle is known as the prime mover, while the relaxing muscle is known as the antagonist. This can be seen in the example of flexion and extension of the arm at the elbow. During flexion, the brachialis along with the bicep is the prime mover, and the tricep is the antagonist. During extension, it is the opposite. The tricep becomes the prime mover, and the brachialis and bicep become the antagonist. In order for a muscle to function, it must be prompted by a stimulus. This is known as excitability or irritability. The contraction of the muscle, thus making it shorten and thicken, is activated by a stimulus sent through a motor nerve. These nerve fibers are sent from the central nervous system. Muscles react through a chemical action. These actions are divided into two stages, contraction and recovery. The contraction stage utilizes actin and myosin to provide energy through the breakdown of glycogen into lactic acid. In the recovery stage, oxygen reacts to the lactic acid and releases carbon dioxide and water. Due to the waste products that are released during muscle contraction, a muscle group is prone to fatigue. This is caused by overuse of the muscle or continuous contraction. The muscle's response to this is to cramp and cease movement. Rest or recovery is essential to optimal muscle performance. Serious permanent damage can occur to muscle cells if it is not able to rest and allow blood flow through it, ridding itself of waste. Tonicity is described as a continual state of partial contraction that gives the muscle its firmness. 
Isometric contraction occurs when the muscle is stimulated and shortens, but no movement occurs. Isotonic contraction occurs when the muscle is stimulated. The muscle shortens and movement occurs. Another unique characteristic of muscles is their ability to stretch when a force is applied and return to normal when the force is removed. This is known as extensibility when it is stretched and elasticity when it returns to normal. When a person dies and is no longer able to perfuse their muscles, these muscles die. This can also be true in cases where the person is alive, but blood flow to the muscle is cut off. Once the muscle dies, it becomes solid and rigid. When it is associated with death, muscles become stiff between 10 minutes and several hours afterwards. This is known as rigor mortis. Now let's get into the different types of muscle tissue. There are three types of muscle tissue found in the body, skeletal, smooth, and cardiac. We will cover each one in more detail. Skeletal muscles are striated tissue that are attached to bones and give the body its shape. They assist with body movement and are considered voluntary muscles because they can be moved at will. Under a microscope, they appear striped, thus gaining their striated classification. Smooth muscles are non-striated and are found in the walls of the stomach, intestines, urinary bladder, blood vessels, and duct glands of the skin. They are known as involuntary muscles because they cannot be moved consciously. The last of the muscle tissue types is the cardiac muscle tissue. This muscle forms the bulk of the walls and septa of the heart, as well as the origins of the large blood vessels. The fibers of cardiac muscle are shorter and branch into a complicated network. It also receives the most blood flow of the three types of muscle tissue. On its contraction, blood is pumped from the heart and through the body. Cardiac muscle, when starved of oxygen, may result in a heart attack. We will now cover some of the major skeletal muscles. Muscles of the head can be divided into two groups, muscles of facial expression and muscles of mastication. As referenced previously, muscles are typically attached at an origin and an insertion point. When the muscles of the head contract, the insertion end is pulled towards the origin. Muscles of facial expression are just that. They are responsible for communication of feelings. Muscles of mastication, on the other hand, are responsible for the chewing actions of the lower jaw or mandible. They allow it to go up and down, side to side, and protrude forward. The cheeks are composed of various tissues as well as the buccinator muscle, which prevents food from escaping the chewing action of the teeth. The tongue is a vascular, thick, solid mass of voluntary muscle. It can be moved freely and is able to alter its size, shape, and position. The tongue participates in keeping food in the mouth, taste, and chewing, as well as speech. The tongue is very active in the chewing and digestion process. Two other important muscles of the mouth are known as the mylohyoid and the geniohyoid. They assist with the elevation of the tongue and the depression of the mandible. The palate forms the roof of the mouth and is divided into hard and soft. The hard palate is the section formed by the palatine process of the maxillary bones and is located on the anterior portion of the mouth. The soft palate is a soft muscular arch in the posterior part of the palate. It assists with the protection of the nasal cavity from food particles, as well as speech. 
Mastication and deglutition are the processes of biting and tearing food into smaller pieces and swallowing the food. Deglutition or swallowing is divided into three phases, the first being voluntary, phase two and three being involuntary. Phase one is the collection and swallowing of masticated food. Phase two is the passage of food through the pharynx into the first part of the esophagus. Phase three is the passage of food into the stomach. Other major muscles include the temporalis, assists with the raising of the jaw, sternocleidomastoid, responsible for rotating the head left and right and bending it forward, trapezius, raise and lower the shoulders, pectoralis major, rotates the arms inwards, pulls a raised arm down towards the chest and brings the arms across the body. Deltoid participates in the raising of the arm. Biceps brachii rotates the forearm outwards and assists with flexing the arm at the elbow. Triceps brachii extends the forearm at the elbow. Latissimus dorsi covers one-third of the back on both sides. It rotates the arm inward and draws the arm down and back. Gluteus the large muscles of the buttocks, composed of the maximus, medius, and minimus. These muscles extend and laterally rotate the thigh, and also abduct and medially rotate it. Quadriceps, a group of four muscles, the rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and vastus intermedius. These muscles work to extend the leg at the knee and as well as flex the thigh. Biceps femoris or hamstring acts with the other muscles to flex the leg at the knee and to extend the thigh at the hip joint. Gracilis serves to adduct the thigh as well as flex and medially rotate the leg. Sartorius. This is the longest muscle in the body and functions to flex and laterally rotate the thigh. It also flexes the leg and assists in rotating it medially. Gastrocnemius and soleus, also known as the calf muscles, they work together to extend the foot at the ankle. Tibialis anterior, this acts as the opposite of the calf muscle to flex the foot at the ankle. Last is the diaphragm. It is an internal muscle that forms the floor of the thoracic cavity. It is the primary muscle of respiration. Knowing all that we need to know at this time about the muscular system, let's move on to what gives us life and keeps everything going, the circulatory system. The circulatory system, also called the vascular system, is composed of the heart, blood vessels, and blood. It is a closed system, meaning that it circulates in a loop throughout the inside of the body, with no opening to the external environment and the heart being the pump that keeps the blood moving. The system's primary function is to transport blood to the cells or organs throughout the body. The blood contains nutrients that are needed for organ function. It also carries waste products away from the cells or organs to keep the body regulated. Two of the main components transported in blood are the gases oxygen and carbon dioxide. Blood is a vital element of the circulatory system. Without blood, there is no need for the system at all. It is a fluid tissue that is composed of formed elements suspended in a fluid called plasma. 
The average adult has about five to six liters circulating at a given time, depending on their size. Let's go further into blood as we cover the components that make it up. As stated earlier, plasma is the liquid portion of blood, where all the other components are suspended for ease of transport. It constitutes 55% of whole blood, and is straw in color when separated from other cells. It is made up of about 92% water and the remainder proteins. Of the notable proteins in plasma, fibrinogen aids blood in coagulation. Red and white blood cells, or RBCs and WBCs, make up approximately the other 45% of whole blood. Of this 45%, whole blood also contains cellular fragments called platelets. When the blood is spun and separated, the cells separate with the heavier RBCs on the bottom, WBCs and platelets in the middle, making up what is known as the buffy coat, and the liquid plasma on the top. Erythrocytes, also known as red blood cells or, again, RBCs, are small, biconcave, non-nucleated discs that are formed within the red blood marrow. The amount of RBCs in the blood varies by male and female, and can also be altered by things such as disease and even altitude. RBCs are combined with an element known as hemoglobin during its development. Without this element, the RBC is unable to perform its primary function of the transport of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Depending on the concentration of hemoglobin attached to the red blood cell, the color of it can range from bright red when oxygen-rich, and dark red when carbon dioxide-rich. On average, an RBC lives between 100 to 120 days. As with the concentration of red blood cells in the body, a red blood cell may die earlier than expected due to trauma, disease, or illness. Following their life cycle, RBCs are transported to the spleen, also known as the graveyard. White blood cells, also known as leukocytes or WBCs, are almost colorless cells when they are nucleated. They originate from bone marrow as well as in certain types of lymphoid tissues in the body. The amount of white blood cells in whole blood depends on actions inside the body at a given time. On average, there are about 6,000 to 8,000 per cubic milliliter but that number can increase drastically during an infection. Leukocytes are broken down into two categories, granulated and non-granulated. From there, the five types of white blood cells are broken down even further. The granulated white blood cells are the three white blood cells with the word fill at the end. Basophils, neutrophils, and eosinophils. The non-granulated white blood cells end with the word site, lymphocyte, and monocyte. Each of the five types of white blood cells serve a different purpose when it comes to fighting infection or foreign agents inside the body. A provider can have a good idea of what is going on with a patient medically just by looking at the numbers of particular leukocytes in the blood, knowing this information aids in the overall diagnosis and treatment of a patient. Naturally, in the blood, without the presence of infection, the amount of each type of white blood cell varies in concentration. The most abundant, naturally, is the neutrophil, 
and the least is the basophil. A good way to remember the concentration of each type of white blood cell in the blood is by using the saying, never let monkeys eat bananas. Associated with most to least, neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. The white blood cell's ability to squeeze between the cells that form blood cell walls, thus leaving the bloodstream through the capillary walls, allows them to attack pathogenic bacteria. This movement is known as diapedesis. Another term related to their disease-fighting properties is phagocytosis. This refers to the method they utilize to rid bacteria from the body by engulfing it or essentially eating it. When a high number of white blood cells are in the blood, it is known as leukocytosis. A low number is known as leukopenia. Besides their primary duty as bacteria control, they can also assist with the clotting of blood. Platelets make up the smallest percentage of blood components. They are also referred to as thrombocytes. In concentration, there are only about 250,000 per cubic milliliter. They also do not contain a nucleus, only cytoplasm. The primary mission of platelets is blood coagulation. Coagulation, also known as clotting, is the function of blood that prevents excessive blood loss. When an injury to a blood vessel takes place, a chemical reaction occurs in the blood, changing the protein fibrinogen to the insoluble protein fibrin. This allows the blood to gelify and then harden to clog the injured area, preventing further loss of blood. Other elements assist with clotting as well, such as prothrombin, which is formed in the liver. Blood clotting may be affected by a number of diseases and factors in the body, one of which is known as hemophilia, an inherited disease that delays the normal 3-5 to five minute clotting time. Due to this, a patient with hemophilia may bleed out even with a minor injury. Next up, and continuing with the circulatory system, is the ever-so-essential pump, the heart. The heart, a hollow organ made up of mostly cardiac muscle, contains chambers and valves for the regulation of blood throughout the body and lungs. It lies to the left of the midline, and its base or upper portion points upwards and to the right, while its apex, or lower portion, points down and to the left, making it oblique. It is about the size of the closed fist of each individual. The heart is enclosed in a tough sac known as the pericardium, which aids in protection. Between the pericardium sac and the heart muscle, pericardial fluid is contained to assist with the ease of movement through lubrication. The inside of the heart is covered with the endocardium, a delicate membrane similar to the inside of blood vessels. The right and left sides of the heart are divided internally by the interventricular septum. Each side contains an atrium, upper portion, and ventricle, lower portion. Between the two are valves that assist with the correct filling and emptying of blood as the heart is compressed. Valves are named according to their number of cusps or their location. The right side of the heart between the right atrium and right ventricle contains the three-cusp valve, the tricuspid. The left side of the heart between the left atrium and left ventricle contains the two-cusp valve, the bicuspid, also known as the mitral valve. 
Leaving the ventricles, there are two additional valves. On the right side, the pulmonary valve is used as the entrance to the pulmonary artery. And on the left side of the heart, the left ventricle pumps blood through the aortic valve into the aorta. The muscle of the heart is known as the myocardium and consists of the majority of the mass of the heart. It is considered cardiac muscle, and like the skeletal muscle fibers, it is striated. However, unlike the skeletal muscle, it is involuntary. The muscle of the atrias are much thinner than their counterparts, the ventricles. This is because blood from the atria is under low pressure. The ventricle's muscle is much thicker due to the amount of pressure required to pump the blood out of the ventricles and into the pulmonary arteries and aorta. The left ventricle muscle is the largest due to the considerable distance blood has to be pushed to reach the distant parts of the body. Flow of blood through the heart is rather simple once you understand the anatomy and where the blood is going. To start, the right atria receives deoxygenated blood from the superior and inferior vena cava from the body. Blood is then pumped to the right ventricle via the tricuspid valve. Once in the right ventricle, the deoxygenated blood is pumped through the pulmonary valve to the pulmonary artery, where it is carried to the lungs to receive oxygen. Following oxygenation, blood is sent via the four pulmonary veins to the left atria, where it is then pushed through the mitral valve into the largest chamber of the heart, the left ventricle. Oxygenated blood in the left ventricle then passes through the aortic valve into the aorta, where it will be circulated through the body, only to eventually return to the superior and inferior vena cava to start the process all over again. The pumping action of the heart, known as a contraction, is done in two phases, the work period, or systole, and the rest period, diastole, although the heart never fully rests. Blood pressure is the measured pressure exerted on the walls of the arteries. The systolic pressure relates to the systole, or contraction of the heart, and is therefore the greatest. The diastolic pressure relates to the relaxation of the heart muscle, or diastole, and creates a lower number. The difference between the two numbers is called the pulse pressure. In order for the heart to begin its work-rest cycle, it must first be stimulated. This is done by electrical impulses that are sent throughout a network of specialized muscle tissues. The cycle begins with a stimulus from the heart's pacemaker, known as the sinoatrial node, or SA node, located in the upper right part of the atrium. As the SA node sends an impulse, both atrias contract at the same time. As the impulse travels down the network, it comes to the atrioventricular node, or AV node, located in the floor of the right atrium. Junctional fibers slow down the impulse to the AV node, allowing time for the atrias to fill before the ventricles are stimulated. Following the impulse of the SA node to the AV node, the impulse is carried to the AV bundle, or bundle of his. From here, the impulse is sent to the branching Purkinje fibers, resulting in the ventricular stimulation and contraction in a twisting motion. As the blood is pushed from the ventricles and into the pulmonary artery and aorta, the cycle completes. It can now begin again and again, approximately 80 to 100 times per minute. Now that we have covered both the blood and the heart, 
Next, we will cover the final component of the cardiovascular system, the blood vessels, also known as the highways. There are five types of blood vessels, beginning with oxygenated blood and ending with deoxygenated blood. These are arteries, arterioles, capillaries, venules, and veins. Arteries and arterioles are considered distributors, capillaries, exchangers, and veins and venules, collectors. This will be further explained a little later. Oxygenated blood is carried away from the heart through arteries. As the arteries reduce in size to allow them to get to smaller areas, they are converted into arterioles, the smallest branches of an artery. These are considered distributors because they deliver the good oxygenated blood throughout the body. Once the arterioles are at their smallest point, they arrive at the capillaries. These microscopic blood vessels are where the tissues of the body are fed. There are approximately 60,000 miles of capillaries in the body. As the good oxygenated blood is delivered to the capillaries, they pass off waste products, such as carbon dioxide, to be carried away by the venules, the smallest of the veins. These venules carry deoxygenated blood that contains the waste products to the veins via a low-pressure system, unlike the arterial system, which is pressurized by the heart's contractions. Veins rely on the body movement to return blood to the heart. A series of valves prevent the backflow of blood in the venous system. Once the blood is returned to the right side of the heart via the superior and inferior vena cava, it can then be circulated back through the lungs to become oxygenated again. This concludes our lesson for Chapter 6, Part 2 of the Hospital Corps Manual. I hope that you were able to not only learn something, but put some of this information in the chapter into action in your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jacketeer, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to check out our next podcast, where we will be covering Part 3 of Chapter 6 of the Corey Manual. As always, I'm Petty Officer Second Class Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you. Thank you.